Amen. Do it again. Y'all want them to sing it again? Come on, ladies. Let's sing it one more time. They want to hear it. What a wonderful song. How can we keep from singing Jesus Christ and what he's done for us? David, if you'll start that back over for us. Praise the Lord. If you can sing and shout the name of Jesus, let's say it. Amen. As loud as you can. Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. If y'all could see what we see sometimes. God sees it all. Y'all, the second time when we sang that, you all put your hearts in worship, in what we see, what God sees. You abandon yourself. You gave up your emotions. You gave up your self-control to just lift your hands, lift your song, lift your hearts to him. Y'all, we got to do this every day. We are in battle. We are at war. And our souls are at stake. Our lives are at stake. Our children are at stake. Our land is at stake. Y'all, that's what it's about. we got to worship and praise. We've got to abandon ourselves and run to the cross and get covered under that blood. It is a beautiful, beautiful sight for us. There's not very many of us today. That's okay. Because the most important person is here, and that's Jesus. He has met us, and y'all have come willingly. Please continue to worship as we hear the word from God. God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, and God is at work. Amen. Amen. We have seen all through God's word him being at work. He's at work even when we, in our human minds, don't see him. But God is at work, and I am so proud to be able to say that I and you as a believer are God's workmanship. God created everyone. God created the lost. He created the saved. He created this world and this universe so that we could be his workmanship. And God loves us. And we are able, as that song said, we are able to sing because of that. We can sing in the good times. Amen. We all love to do that. Praise the Lord. But as believers and with us being in Jesus, we can sing even in the difficult times. And I believe that we are in difficult times now. We have been for a while. And we're still able to sing. We're still able to worship. It doesn't matter what Satan throws at us. He cannot hold us back as believers because we have the king himself living in us. And we are powerful if we will be on our knees. Some say humility is weakness. I disagree. Humility is our strength. It's not about standing tall. It's about bowing down before the cross. And when we're on our knees, there's nothing too great, and that's what Satan doesn't like, because he knows the power of prayer. He knows the power of singing and the, the power of worship. And as we continue looking at what the church is through the book of Acts, today I ask that you take your word, your Bible, God's holy word, and open to Acts chapter 7. And we've been making our way, and last week we talked about setting the stage and being at a pivotal point, we're getting to the point here where things are fixing to change. God's message has been 
being reached out to Jerusalem and to the, the leaders and all of those in the temple area. But God's message is bigger than that. God's message isn't just for the Jews. God's message was for the entire world that he created. And he's getting ready to spread that message. And we see so often that this happens through persecution. And one that's now been picked out, a man full of God, and he even shone on his face like the angel Stephen has now been brought and he is put on trial. And we're going to look at his trial today just briefly. I know you say yes, right, briefly. I looked in the bulletin. You're covering 53 verses. We're going to get through it. And we're going to get through it without needing a picnic lunch, I promise you. We're going to look at portions of this. But next week, you want to be here as we look at them stoning Stephen. Not something that we want to miss, not something we like talking about, but how we get to see God at work all around us. And today, let's take a look at this uh, trial beginning there uh, at in Acts 7, and we're just going to look at, at part of these, and it begins off that they talk about the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And what we got to understand is who he's addressing. Stephen is now before the Sanhedrin. He's before the council. He's before, as we would say, the, the judge and the jury is there. He's on trial. The spotlight's on him. And they ask him, well, how, what is your comment on this? Do you say that you're guilty or you're not guilty to the charges brought before you? And how does he address them? He turns around and he calls them brethren first. The men that are sitting before him are fellow uh, they're Jews, they're people, just like he was. And he was like brethren. He's there in the temple uh, where they were having this. And then he also calls them fathers. None of these men were Stephen's biological father. And none of these men were Stephen's spiritual father. Why is he addressing them as father? He addressed them as father out of respect for their leadership. This was the leaders of the Israelites and out of that respect, he addressed them to that. But then he wants to go in because they've accused him of being against Moses. They accused him of being against the temple. They accused him of talking about destroying the temple and about the law. So he's got to defend himself. And he does this. But the first thing I want us to look at is he does this and he talks about faith. Faith is the key thing for all of Christianity. Without faith... There is no Christianity because we have to have faith in Jesus Christ. What does that faith mean? Is that that we're just blind faith? We take anything we see? No. Faith is the confidence of things that we haven't seen. Every one of us sitting in this room is confident that there is a Lord and Savior. We all are confident that there is Jesus Christ and that this cross here is just a symbol, but we know that through our faith that he died on that cross for us, yet we've never seen it. Well, how does he describe faith when he's looking at the leaders of the Israelite people? Well, he does that, first of all, by talking about Abraham. Let's look there at 7 uh, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory, excuse me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. 
and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land I will show you. Abraham had to have faith in the one that was speaking to him. Abraham had to have faith because God didn't tell him, Abraham, I want you to get in your car and leave Stanley, and you're going to go to Shreveport, and I'm going to give you that land. Did you hear that in there? He said, Abraham, you go, and I'll show you where you're going. Now, that's faith. We don't like that. Some of us enjoy a trip. We just get in the car and go to where we're going. But when we're getting ready to leave everything behind, we're getting ready to leave our family, we're getting ready to leave all those that we know, and we're going somewhere, we want to know where we're going. Most of us want to already have a place there. We either already have a home there, or we have a hotel or relatives, someone we're going to stay with. But God told Abraham to leave and to go, and I'll show you where. So he had to have that faith, and he talks about it there, about the circumcision as you read through this. We're not going to read it all day, but Moses had to act out on that faith. He also told Moses to go to a land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Well, we got to have faith here, Moses does, because number one, he don't have any children. He's getting older and he still doesn't have any children. And he had no inheritance in this land, but he had faith that the God that was sending him would provide what the God said he was doing. You see, God's always at work. Abraham had to leave where he was so that God could begin to set the stage for what God needed to do. And he obeyed by faith in verse 5 and said, but he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants. What a faith that was there. He had that faith, and it told him that he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve. And we have to understand that circumcision was symbolic for the covenant that God made. Well, what Stephen's doing here before this council, and he's, he's basically telling them, you've taken God's symbols and you're making them what you stand on. Circumcision was a big thing. If you were a Jew, you were circumcised. If you come into the, the Jewish as a male, you were circumcised and they prided themselves and that circumcision. But do we have something like that maybe today? We have baptism. Do you know the people that want to be baptized because that's the thing to do? I get baptized. I'm a believer. I'm saved. It's a symbol of an inward thing, an outward symbol of an inward thing that has changed. But there are many today that would tell you if you ask them, if they were to die today, where are they going? When they die, they would tell you, I'm going to heaven. Well, amen. Praise the Lord. Why are you going to heaven? I was baptized. I didn't get them nowhere. It'll get them wet. Circumcision did nothing for them. It was a sign of the covenant, and they were not holding to the covenant. My house, Stephen, had a way of rubbing the salt in the wound without even letting them know it. You know, you're all about your circumcision. Look at Abraham that was there. 
They didn't believe in the one who the circumcision represented. They're still waiting for the Messiah. That's what the circumcision was, that covenant. The new covenant had now come, and they wanted nothing to do with it. But it wasn't only that. He gets it with rejection. Not just talking about faith, but rejection. I want us to look at three people as we look through some of this scripture. We're going to look at Joseph, Moses, and the Jews. Let's look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 7. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers that Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. God is at work. Even when we don't see him, God is always at work around us. God took Joseph, this young man, his brothers wanted nothing to do with him. He, he told them what would happen, and they rejected him. But God took this young man, allowed him to be rejected by his own family, sold into slavery, and then put in prison. But eventually God was working, setting the stage so that Joseph would be able to save the people. There was a famine coming. And this was through a dream through Pharaoh. Joseph was able to tell him what it was, so they lifted him into power. Guess what? Joseph's own family that rejected him, they needed help. They were in a land. The famine was severe. It was everywhere. And because of Joseph being able to tell the dream through the leading of God, they had stored up grain. Joseph's brothers come, and once again, they reject him for who he was. But it told us there the second time. He came, they received him, and he disclosed who he was, and they accepted him. What about Moses? Moses, a little innocent baby, born at a time of turmoil, God working ahead, saying all of the male children by the order of Pharaoh was to be killed. But Moses was kept aside. God at work in little baby Moses preparing him. He allows him to be put into a basket and just by happen chance, if you believe in that, he floated down right in front of Pharaoh's daughters. And she took him out and oh, what a cute little baby he was. She gets her maid and said, can you find me someone to nurse him until he's ready to be weaned? Well, where did Moses go? God's always at work. He went right back to his own mother. His mother raised him. And then he goes into Pharaoh's house and he becomes one of Pharaoh's own. The very one Pharaoh was out to kill is now being raised up as his own, being taught in their way, being taught about their gods, their, their language, how you do everything. God's at work in Moses' life even though we might not see it. Moses then sees a one of their leaders beating up on one of the Jews. And what does Moses do? Y'all know the story. He goes over there and he kills him. Moses is trying to save his own people. But the first time around, what did they do? They rejected Moses. He goes back in. Are you going to kill us too? So now Moses, once again, he has a baby. He left his family. Now he's been raised in Pharaoh. Now he's leaving 
because he's been rejected by his own, and he goes out in the wilderness, and he forms a new family, and he becomes a, a shepherd out there and helping, and all of a sudden he sees what? A bush on fire, but it's not burning up. Would that get your attention? Amen. It'd get mine. And he goes over there, and God tells him, you're on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And God begins to prepare Moses as he speaks to him. Moses, I'm calling you to set my people free. So Moses goes back reluctantly, like most of us, and he goes to his people a second time, and he delivers the people out of Egypt. And because all that he knew, he knew the ways of Pharaoh. He knew how to speak to Pharaoh. He went there, and they received him. Verse 35 says, Then Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Is this the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush? They rejected him and said, are you our ruler? And all of a sudden, the second time, here he comes back. The Lord has prepared him, and he is now a ruler and a leader for them. But you know, here we go again with Stephen. He has his way of doing stuff. Let's open the wound and pour on some more salt, okay? Y'all got me on trial here, and you're accusing me of this, you Jews. But listen here. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come to you, his people, the first time, you rejected him. You killed him on the cross. But guess what's going to happen the second time? Everyone's going to know when Jesus returns the second time to take us home that he is that. And the Jews will know at that point and many will receive him but then he goes in and he wants to talk about, they said that he was going to destroy the temple. So he talks about destruction. He says, look there again at Moses. Look at verse 42. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel. He's telling them here, God gave the Jews originally the tabernacle. That was the tent of meetings. As they would travel from place to place, they would set it up. That's where God would house and they, they would worship God. And then God begins to give them the law when Moses is up on the mountain. And Moses comes down and there they are. They done created an idol. A golden calf. They've already rejected the one who just brought them out of Egypt. You took your own and you rejected it and you, you made a calf and he said, and God told them that he was going to turn them over basically to their own desires. Do you know what happens to us today if we continue to reject him? Let's look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward another man with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the dual penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a deprived mind to do those things which are not proper. What a verse. If you keep rejecting and you finally want nothing to do with it, God will release you. And there's consequences, and you're going to pay those consequences. And that's exactly what was happening, that the Jews had already for so long been trying to do their own way. This Sanhedrin that had him on trial is already saying, you know, we're doing it our way. It's our laws. God gave us some, and we've added a bunch to it. And they've even at times worshipped and lifted up incense to other gods. Even in the temple, God eventually had to destroy that. They're trying to say that uh, Stephen was talking about destroying it, which isn't what was said. He was repeating what was said that they said that Jesus, Jesus said, you destroy me. Jesus didn't say he was going to destroy it. So he's coming right back at him. And then it goes on to David. He begins talking about David in here. David wanted to build a temple, a permanent dwelling place for God. And God said, not you, David, but your son Solomon. And he built the temple, and that temple to this day has been torn down because they began to worship other things. And incense were being lifted up, and the people chose to rebel against God. And they wanted to worship other things. So I can see Stephen in his own words say, why are you coming after me? Everything you're accusing me of is exactly what you're doing. The Bible say, you know, check the, the log in your own eye before you're worried with the speck in someone else's. I believe we can maybe reply that here. And then he really hits them hard there in verses 51 through 53. When he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, who, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angel, and yet you do not keep it. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Church, let me just tell you, that's a very dangerous place to be. When Holy Spirit speaks, we need to listen. But here he's telling these dudes, you are Jews. Jesus came for you first. He come to bring you the word. And he goes back all through history. I mean, in these 53 verses, he covers pretty much the entire Old Testament. And he says, listen, God has sent you prophet after prophet. God is trying to tell you who he was, that he loves you. He tried to tell you who the Messiah was is all in the Old Testament. And everything up until this point that could have been was fulfilled. And here you are still rejecting. You're so stiff-necked. You're so hung up on your own self that regardless of what is right in front of you, 
you're rejecting, and then you dare to bring me in here and bring this up. You won't even listen, and even you killed him. Just like they were getting ready to kill Stephen. You know, they accused Stephen of speaking against the law. Let's look, if you've got your Bibles, this isn't going to be on the screen, in uh, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, we looked at last week. They couldn't catch him in the truth, so they're going to bring in these false witnesses. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man insistently speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. They accused him of speaking against the law, which even they wasn't upholding. They accused him of speaking against the temple and destroying it, and that was not so. Even they, the temple meant nothing to them. As much as they might have held it in regard, what it represented was not with them, and said that they were speaking against the customs of Moses, when all he ends up doing is upholding the customs of Moses, and they're the ones that are following it out. Now, let me let you hear this. God is at work. And we are God's workmanship. God is, church, regardless of what we see. God is always at work around us to prepare us. God created us for a reason. He's going to pull that out through us. Abraham, we talked about him. He had to leave his own people to go and to save the whole group. Joseph, he had to leave his family. He was sold into slavery. He had to be rejected by his own brothers to save the whole group. Moses was to be killed as an infant, but instead raised up as Pharaoh's own. God's there at work. He was rejected by his own people to save the whole group. He had to flee to return to save the Jews. Jesus had to be rejected by his own to save the whole group. God is always at work around us, and we see throughout the word and throughout history that God was working even when we didn't see it. Do you think that Abraham would have told you when God told him to go that he was going to use him to save the whole group? I don't think so. When Moses and or Joseph went out and he was sold by his own brothers and the, the rejection that was there, do you think Joseph had any idea that God was working through those tragic situations to prepare him to again save the whole group? Moses. Sunday night little group, we've been reading about Moses. Moses had to have enough faith to go back to the people who were wanting to kill him to set him free. God was at work all in Moses' life, believe it or not. 
the only one that left the greatest, and that's Jesus Christ, had to leave his throne in heaven. He willingly came and clothed over his glory. I want you to hear what I said. He clothed over his glory. He did not leave his glory in heaven. He clothed over it because we could not stand to see it. He chose to come and put on human flesh and to live a perfect life only to be rejected and ridiculed by the people he was sent to. But he did it to save the whole world. God is at work around us. And when we see our difficult times, what we need to do is take our eyes, focus them on God, and let God deal with the consequences. What is God preparing to do? Why do I say that? I've heard some say, you know, there's just no hope. I don't see that there's anything else that can come out of this. And I've heard that from some very good believers. They just, I, I don't see it. And you know, we don't because we have finite minds. But every time in Scripture that we have seen God working, there's some form of persecution. There's some form of something. Why does he do that? Because we like to get comfortable. How many of you like being comfortable? Sit in your recliner with your pajamas on and throw your feet back and turn the air conditioner down and have the fan going. We like to get comfortable. And guess what? The grass in the yard, it continues to grow and it gets higher while we're enjoying our comforts. As believers, we become very comfortable with church. We come to our nice little stained glass. I love our stained glass. It's beautiful. Pretty place. We have our air conditioners and our, our padded seats and we can come right here and we play Christianity very well right here. But where the war is going out there, the reason God has to do that, because sometimes we get a little too comfortable. We have to get woke up, a little sandpaper. You're working on some wood, and you get comfortable with what you're doing. Your finger hits that sandpaper spinning around. It wakes you up real quick. Sometimes God has to work us. And he allows us to go through these times to, to wake us up. But what is he doing but taking and molding in us to make us something very beautiful. And as he begins to work off those rough edges, one day, we're all going to be perfect. We're going to be beautiful. We're no longer going to have any rough edges. We'll be able to see Jesus face to face. But you know, as we're going there, God's preparing us. Let's take the ride. Let's get woke up, keep our eyes focused on him. And what you need to remember, even through COVID, now listen to me real close. God's at work. He's at work in me. He's at work in each of you. Because he has something grander that we can't see. I know you've heard the analogy, and I'll close with this, about the little boy who was sitting on the floor. His grandmother was sitting in a chair up above him and she had this piece of material and he was looking at what she was doing. He's kind of like, you know, that thing grandma working on there, that's ugly. 
all these little ratty strings and these knots and just horrible colors. And as he's just looking up, I don't understand why she spends all day doing that. But when he gets on the reverse side and he sees the crochet that she's been working on, the, the, the blanket and the tapestry that comes out of that, that's where we are. We don't see this side. But our Heavenly Father does. He knows each and every one of us individually. And each and every one of us, he's creating to be special way. Amen. Remember through the hard times that you are God's handiwork. You're his workmanship. And what does a craftsman love to do but to show off your workmanship? God's proud of you. God loves you. And you're beautiful to God. We're his workmanship. Keep our eyes focused on him through the difficulty. And one day we'll get to look back and say, just like we can look at Moses, Abraham, and Joseph, all those, and say, wow, what God did. I'm looking for the day that we can look back to 2020 and COVID and say, man, look at what God was doing here because he's at work. May you bow your head.